right now on Higher Journeys with Alexis Brooks. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to Higher Journeys. So glad that you're able to join me today. Well, I just wrapped up yet another absolutely fascinating, I'm trying to think of other adjectives to use to describe my new friend, Anthony Peak. fascinating, uh, just inspirational. He's the kind of guy that makes you want to be a researcher because there's just so much in terms of the nature of reality to look into. And I think it's worth doing that deep dive because after all, we're an integral part of it. Well, we continued with part two today. I know there are so many of you that wanted to have Anthony back, and I'm so delighted that he was able to oblige us. So I am going to make this intro short because I want to get to the chat. By the way, we had a little bit of a Skype glitch, so we had to do it in two parts. But the good news is we went a little bit longer than we had planned. So much, uh, so many areas to to cover. We did get into this idea with the ears. We're going to talk about that because he is kind of tuned in, forgive the pun, to some ear anomalies that have been going on with many of us, myself included. We're going to talk uh, about something called the egregorial realm. Very, very fascinating. Let me just let him get to it. Let's get to our conversation with Anthony Peake right here. Anthony Peake, no formal uh, welcome, I think is necessary today because everybody knows who you are after being on Higher Journeys. Well, people know who you are anyway, but you've got a whole new slew of fans and I am so delighted you're back with us for part two. I don't know if you've had a chance to peruse any of the comments, which we're going to get to, but everybody's like, have him back for part two. When I mentioned that last time, they really wanted you back. So I'm so delighted that you graciously accepted for number two. So welcome again to Higher Journeys. Oh, it's, it's wonderful to be back. I really enjoyed the last show. It was I really, really so. good. I felt we only scratched the surface. So this Absolutely. is a wonderful opportunity. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And I hope all is well with you and your uh, family in the UK as we speak. Oh, yeah. No, no, fine. We're, we're in lockdown and everything else like everybody Still. else. But uh, no, it's, it's fine. Okay. But as we were discussing just before, you know, it's gardening and everything else as well. Just keep everybody going. Absolutely. You know, which is good. Gardener's World will give a clue to Monty Absolutely. Gardner's World. We just found out that we have we yet another thing in common, gardening. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're, we're going to cover some things, uh, Anthony, that uh, both came up in comments as well as some offline conversation that you and I have had in the interim between our first interview and now. And one has to do with, and I know journeyers, you're going to love this because we've been talking about it. I'm going to call this broadly ear anomalies. Now, you brought up something mm. having to do with something that you would describe as a Morse code. And when you brought this up, a sound that's replicating, it seems, Morse code in the ear. And when I heard you say that, I thought, aha, sounds like part of what I'm having here. I then listened to it and I thought, mm, it's not quite that. But look, there are lots of, it seems, unusual sounds happening in people's both ears these days more mm. recently. And I thought we would start by diving into that. What's this Morse code all about that you're, that you're speaking of? Well, it was very strange. Um, my wife was away on business. It was around about, I don't know, six years ago, seven years ago. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I could hear this very distinct Morse code sound. And it's, it seemed external to me. It didn't seem to be part of me. Now, I because I used to be heavily involved and interested in rock music many, many years ago, I used to go to an awful lot of um, rock concerts and everything else. And I do have tinnitus in this ear. Oh. So I know the sound of tinnitus. And it's quite distinct and it's continued there. It's a kind of a high-pitched sound. But we can touch upon this as well because this is an intriguing angle to that as well. But this was quite a different sound. 
and it was the and it seemed to be distant it wasn't close by it was as if you know you're hearing a sound from something making a noise many miles away and you're you're picking it up now it was around about 10 past three in the morning when i woke up and i heard this and it was so distinct that i got out of bed and i i put my head out the window and I could still hear it. And then I walked downstairs because I wanted to locate the sound because I just thought this is just most peculiar. And it was only when I was listening to it that I suddenly remembered that I'd been hearing this regularly for many, many years. But what I hadn't done was necessarily associated it. I hadn't mainly linked it because it was very much waking up in the middle of the night and hearing this. Hmm. So... I then listened to it and went back to bed and it, it continued for about 20 minutes and then it stopped suddenly. And I thought, very strange. Then the next night I wake up, 10 past three, no sound. And then immediately after 10 past three, it starts again. And exactly the same period of time. And it finished after about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and then it stopped again. So I thought to myself, this is peculiar. This is not... It is something clearly external to me, and it's something I'm picking up on. It's something I'm hearing in some way. Now, I then did some research on the web, and I came across um, a website um, by um, a lady called Sharon Barrett, who is an American lady. And what I did was I did a search, and I just did a search on Morse code sounds. And she had a website where she'd been tracking around the world people hearing this sound so it, clearly it's not just me and it was not just her because many people hear it now i started then doing some more research because i didn't want to let this go because i thought this is this is this is just strange is it just subliminal or is it more than this is it inside our heads is it outside of us and i started to research and i discovered that the sound that i was hearing is incredibly similar to harp which is the high altitude oral, and I can't think what the other two letters are. Right. But it's to do Active with the original. Yeah. It was the original Star Wars program that Ronald Reagan put in, and there's a whole um, place in Alaska that has this harp. And what they're doing is they're bouncing high altitude um, waves off the stratosphere and bouncing them back down That's right. again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I thought to myself, but I'm nowhere near Alaska, so clearly. It can't be that. So I started researching and I discovered that in Norway, there is a harp facility. But even there, I was thinking, no, this, this is still, Norway is still too far away. And I was living on a place called the Wirral at the time, the Wirral Peninsula in the northwest of England, where I'm originally from. And I did some more research and I discovered that there's a, a similar harp facility in North Wales hmm. um, near, um, near Barmouth. And that, again, was no more than probably 40 miles from where I was living at the time. So I then started watching this because I travel a lot. I, I became more sensitive, it, sensitive to it. And I checked when I would hear it and when I wouldn't. And there are certain locations around the world where I hear it and other locations I don't. I travel regularly to Greece and sometimes I'll hear it in Greece and sometimes I won't. I tested it when I was down in Australia. And um, again, amazing coincidence with Australia, mm -hmm. which we'll come back to later. Um, and I heard it on occasions down there, but not all the time. I don't hear it on aircraft, 
So when I'm flying, I don't hear it. So clearly there is something peculiar going on here. And what it is, I'm not quite sure. But clearly some people are sensitive to this sound and they hear it and they hear it on a regular basis. The issue to me is why do certain people hear it and other people That's don't? That's right. Is it to do with the resonation of your skull? Is it to do with something else? And I wondered whether it could be to do possibly with a resonation of pineal sand, which is um, substance that's found in the pineal gland. We know that um, the, the, the pineal gland, the, the, this, this uh, substance, this crystalline substance that's within the pineal gland is piezoelectric. Mm -hmm. Magnetite? So is that magnetite? Magnetite. Yeah. It's very similar to magnetite okay. indeed. And in one of my books, I do the links with magnetite as well to say, you know, because magnetite is the thing that um, birds use to orientate right. themselves by the 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 the, um, the 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 fields on on the planet on the Earth. Now, again, is it to do with something like the Schumann resonance mm -hmm. and to do with the the actual resonance of the planet Earth itself, or what? And I'm still not sure, but. It intrigues me. Now, I did a, a radio program. If anybody's interested on this, if they want to look, I used to regularly do a radio program on BBC Radio Merseyside. And I used to do it once every fortnight. And I had a film crew following me around at that time doing a, 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 a documentary on my life and what I was doing. And they filmed me discussing this on live UK radio. Um, and in it, they really did a very good job because they 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 managed to find for the documentary photographs of the harp facility, the various harp facilities, and they also managed to reproduce the sound of what harp sounds like, and it's what I hear. Is it it's really? Most definitely, yeah, it's it's profoundly similar. Now I still mm -hmm. hear it. I hear it less down here because we're now down in the deep southeast of England, rather than in the northwest. I hear it less here, but I still do hear it. Um, now, I'm wondering, again, whether there are links here, because one of the areas I've long been fascinated with is tinnitus. Now, tinnitus, the research I've gone into suggests that tinnitus actually could be a low level, continual um, seizure of some description mm -hmm. happening in the brain, because... Hmm. It again seems to be it's it's a continuous sound. Now it could just be damage in the ear, which is possible, but it is qualitatively different to whatever this sound is. This mm -hmm. sound is definitely external to me. And again, if anybody is out there, and and Sharon Barrett would be delighted to hear from you guys um, if you're interested in this. I mean, she's a Facebook friend of mine and everything else as well. Now I know that she's still quite fascinated by this subject. Mm -hmm. So there are these things that. We seem to attune to, but not all of us. Not all of us, that's and that's that's a very that's a very key thing, uh, Anthony. Well, I want to I want to stay on this topic a little bit, only because so many of the folks that have been listening to the show or watching the show have been, uh, for the last I'd say, really concurrent with this new dynamic we find ourselves in, talking about. I'm calling them ear anomalies because, again, once I listened to it, I saw that BBC, that little clip, and we can maybe put a link for everybody uh, under the show, uh, in the show description here. And I heard the most Morse code. I said, mm, that's not what I'm getting. I'll tell you, I've been talking about it with the juniors. For me, and I know what tini tini you say, tinnitus, I, tinnitus, mm -hmm. I, I pronounce, uh, I have that as well, but this is clearly different. What I have been getting, Anthony, is what I would call and what one of the journeyers described as white noise, a white noise, uh, sort of buzzing sensation in both Whoa. ears. And it's happening as I'm speaking right now. 
It's been a, since about mid-February. It has been unrelenting for this period of time. It's 24-7. The only difference is in terms of the loudness, let's say. However, there is another sound that I've been getting. And this is when you said Morse code, it made me think this is it, but it's a little bit different. And I'm going to make the sound. It's a in one ear. And that has also been going on for, I would say, the better part of a year. But definitely uh, the ear anomalies for me have been really incredible uh, in the last several months, but for a lot of the people as well. So you bring in a lot of factors here. We're, and I know many of our audience are familiar with the HARP facility and HARP is still, as far as I know, very alive and well and has a multiplicity of uh, facilities uh, across the planet. I don't know exactly what's happening right now, but that is a very interesting uh, component that you bring in. You brought in the Schumann resonance of which I have always been fascinated with, particularly in recent years. There, there seems to be these very anomalous fluctuations in the Hertz frequency of the Schumann uh, resonance. Mm. So that's something worth looking into. Uh, you brought in another factor. Uh, oh, gosh, you brought in uh, another one that and I think that they may be all related. Um, what about the consciousness factor? Let's get into the consciousness factor. The, the real perplexing question is, are we dealing with an anomaly that can be explained with the left brain logic? Are we dealing mm. with something that has an esoteric underpinning? Are we dealing with the intersection of both from your perspective? I think it's the intersection of both because when you were talking before, again, I was reminded of another sound that I hear, which is a kind of a ringing sound, which gets higher and higher and higher and then goes back down again. You know, it suddenly just occurs for no, no apparent reason, just suddenly it will occur and I will, I will perceive it. And I've always wondered exactly what this is now the question here we need to as i always will do i'm i'm interested in in perception anyway perception studies has intrigued me for many many years and it is the the issue of we say that it, it could be something to do with with um, damage to the ear or damage to the eardrum or anything else but we've got to take one step back here and realize what is the nature of sound perception hmm. When we hear things, what are we really talking about here? And what we're talking about is sound waves. Initially, we hear because sound waves hit the ear, hit the cochlea, hit the, um, the, the eardrum and everything else, and they cause vibrations. But these are just vibrations in the air. They're not the sounds we hear are no more external in the external world than the color red is. It's a very important point to make that the brain converts those vibrations into a sound, which we then interpret as being a specific sound. But there is no reason why that sound should be that way rather than any other way. And indeed, the issue will be that the brain then converts those sound waves into an electric electronic signal, which then travels across the brain and is then processed within the brain itself to create a, a sound, which is then presented to consciousness. Now, the question here is twofold. The first one is, how is the sound converted into something we hear internally? Mm -hmm. Because we're not hearing with our ear anymore. We're hearing with our perceptions. And then from there, we then have the issue of what is it that is, is doing the perception in the brain? What is the 
the, the, the homunculus, the being inside the brain that is you and I within our brains. And what, how is that perceiving things? So, and it's a problem I have getting difficulty across sometimes, particularly with individuals who are very rooted in what's called the um, naive realism viewpoint of consciousness and the external world. People who are naive realists believe that there's a one-to-one relationship between what you are perceiving, what your brain is presenting to you as the conscious observer in your head, or wherever you're likely to be located, there's no even proof you're inside your head, to what the external world is really like. And I use the analogy, for instance, the color red. Where is the color red? And in one of my books, I use this analogy and I said, imagine that you and I, Alexis and I, we are sitting watching the film um, Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if you recall in Schindler's List, the film is filmed in black and white. Mm-hmm. There's only one one very small sequence where color is used, and that's the color red. And it is used when in one sequence where you see a little girl crossing a road and she's wearing a red coat. And that's the only time you see it, except towards the end of the film when there's a pile of bodies from a concentration camp. And within the pile of bodies, you see this red and you realize it's the little girl's body. OK, very cleverly done. Mm-hmm. But let's look at the process taking place here. When they made that film, they must have filmed it initially in colour. And Steven Spielberg must have decided we'll now make it black and white and we will only keep the red from that particular scene. That is then converted into celluloid. And then and it's filmed. So it's filmed and it's filmed as the way. And the the red leaves the girls, the, the, the coat which is a particular vibration of the electromagnetic field, Mm -hmm. the the photons leave the girl's coat and they enter the camera that's doing the filming. The camera then converts that into an electric signal. The electric signal is then converted into film. The film was then converted into um, a videotape. The videotape is then purchased by us because we're going to be watching it and we put the videotape or the dvd into our videotape player the videotape then changes that signal again into an electric signal which then goes up into your television screen or your flat screen television which then is informed that the pixels the pixels of that area have to give off a certain part of the electromagnetic spectrum They then leave the TV screen, are converted into photons, which cross the intervening space between the TV screen and your eye. The photons, and remember the signal is not one photon. What happens is a photon hits, as it crosses the air, it hits an an, an atom or the electrons in the edge of an atom, which causes the electron to change its location it's it's technically what's known as its its orbital. And in order to do so, it takes in that photon, goes down a different level and gives off another photon, which is not the same photon that hit it. And that happens billions of times as the photo as the as the signal moves across the air between the screen and your eye. It then enters your eye through your pupil, then enters your aqueous humor, which is the kind of thick body of liquid that surrounds the, is inside the eye. All the time, the photon is changing as it hits uh, atoms and changes electrons. It then gets to the back of your eye and then hits 
the um, the retina, which is interestingly enough, although it's at the back of the eye, is actually part of the brain, so it has neurons inside it. The retina then converts that red signal to an electrical signal, which then is transferred right back to the darkest part of your brain, which is your which is your visual cortex at the back here. It then converts that back from an electrical signal into the color red, which it then magically presents to whatever you are inside your head and you, which is an amorphous something that is non-physical, that has had no contact with the TV screen or your retina or anything else, suddenly sees the red on the screen of the little girl's dress or coat. And my question is, where is the red? And the argument is, the red is nowhere. Ladies and gentlemen, you have just gotten a taste of the future Dr. Peake's doctoral thesis. <laughs> oh my gosh. I have nothing to say to that except take it in. Except I'm going to throw a twist. And we're not going to have time to dive into this. Put the idea of synesthesia on top of that process. Oh, yeah. I am a synesthete. I'm a synesthete, by the You're way. You're a synesthete. Sunday is a red really? day. Sunday is a red day. Saturday is white. Monday, well, they're different. Yes, I am. And as you were describing this very, very intricate, and yet I followed you, very intricate process, I thought. And how would a, how would this process work for a synesthete who might smell color or, or taste yeah. a day of the week? For me, it's colors, days of the week, and other things. That might have to be a part three. Because we can't go anywhere. Totally from that fascinating, point. isn't it? I mean, with Daniel Tramet, wasn't it? With Daniel Tramet wrote a book called um, About Tuesday. It was a blue Tuesday. Is Tuesday's a blue, a blue day, day. I think. That's right. And Tuesday's a blue day you know, for me. Navy blue. Interesting, Monday, isn't it? Monday so is... there's a sing... So there is a, a, a similarity between between you and on on the synesthetes because you know synesthesia is something I've written about in the past. You know, and people like Scriabin, the the Russian composer. He saw music. Mm -hmm. So certain notes had certain shapes to him. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I have researched certain mathematical savants who are synesthetics and they see numbers in different shapes. I think Tramit does this, uh -huh. whereby if you put the colors together and you have a number and you're trying to do a mathematical equation or a mathematical calculation, a synesthete will take the colors and mix them together to get a different color, which means a different number, and then that number will be the result of the mathematical question that was asked to them. Amazing. Now, the question is, what is happening here? There's overlapping of perception. Synesthesia is intriguing. Isn't it? Because though? it tells us something extraordinary about perception, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to have to go into that one. I, I would say let's uh, maybe dedicate a show to, to talk about synesthesia. All of the things, folks, that we are diving into today, we're only going to get to a couple more because we're almost out of time. I can't believe it. Um, our, our, our thesis theses in and of themselves. I'm going to jump because I want to get a couple of uh, maybe one or two other things in. So I did something today. I told you offline, uh, Anthony, called um, stichomancy, which is a term that I just learned. I call it good old book dowsing, where you take a book. We'll take mine as an example. You run your finger across, you open it where you feel you need to, you stab your finger at a certain page, 
And the word or words surrounding where your finger lands is perhaps an answer to your question. Or in my case, for you, uh, I wanted to pick something out of your amazing book, The Hidden Universe, going to give that another plug that I thought we could you could do a little bit of a, an explanation. So I did that. And I did a book dowsing with an ebook, which was even a little bit more challenging. But nonetheless, I came up with something that I think you can, we may have touched on this in the first interview, I'm not sure, something that you refer to as the egregorial realm. Talk mm. about, give us maybe about five minutes or so on that. And I know that I'm really not doing this justice, but if you would, because I, I do think that that is fascinating. The egregorial it, realm, where'd you get that? Okay. I have long been intrigued by the nature of entities, intelligences, whatever we want to call them, that we encounter in altered states of consciousness. Now, I define altered states as consciousness of anything from lucid dreaming to out-of-the-body experiences to near-death experiences um, to experiences facilitated by entheogen substance such as dimethyltryptamine and LSD and magic mushrooms. Also, entities that people experience when they are in shamanic traveling. Mm. Um, entities that we seem to hear voices under certain circumstances that seem to manifest and seem to be giving instructions. When people see entities, when they see aliens, when they see greys, all of these things, when people see, um, when they have hallucinations such as Charles Bonnet syndrome, these entities on occasion seem to have independence of us, but they seem to be at the same time created by us. And this intrigues me because I think that to call them hallucinations is to simplify it. It's again what I call the label theory of science. The label theory is, do you remember in the Old Testament when um, uh, Adam and Eve were given the animals of the land and God turned around and said, "We, I will give you power over these animals by giving, by allowing you to give them names. Now, this is what science does now. It decides that there's something it doesn't necessarily understand, but it will give it a label. And by giving it a label, preferably Latin or Greek, mm. it gives them power to pretend that they therefore understand what it is. Mm. I give an example of this, the term any illness like idiomatic epilepsy. If somebody diagnosed and somebody said to you, you had idiomatic epilepsy, you'd think that the doctor had actually explained what you had and had, had had answered your question and found it. Idiomatic means we don't know. That's mm. exactly what idiomatic means. Have you lost me? Um, I can hear you, but you're froze. So let's see if you come back. Okay. If not, okay. See, you're getting you're getting, a, you're getting so deep issue. now. Skype the Skype gremlins are coming out, and I know that happens with you. It does. I tell you what, we're going to take a quick break, guys, and I'm going to call Anthony Peak right back. So, Anthony, stand by. I'm going to call you back. See you in a minute. If you're enjoying this episode and want to get more conversations about all things intriguing, inspiring, and unusual, be sure to subscribe to Higher Journeys on YouTube. And once you do, don't forget to hit that notification bell to receive an announcement as soon as a new episode is posted. And now, back to our show. Okay, folks, we're back. Yep, the Skype gremlins are at it again, but not to worry. We're back. When the computer fails, we have our phones. So 
here we are for the remaining minutes. Finish up your thought. <laughs> liking me discussing the egregores. Yeah. Um, they clearly don't get on very much. <laughs> can I? Possibly. Can I? Um, I'm not sure how far I had, I had got yeah. in terms of. Well, you know, I'm going to use this lull, lull to bring up a point that could be a, yet another takeoff point. But as you, again, so succinctly explained this idea of an egregorial realm, Anthony, here's what came to mind in terms of owning something by naming it and becoming more acclimated to it, almost having it take on its own consciousness. You know what came to mind? Now, I don't know about in the UK, I have a feeling it is the same, but here with pharmaceuticals as an example, when I see a pharmaceutical ad invariably, when they're talking about whatever the dis-ease is, the person, the actor that's in the commercial will call it my diabetes, my cancer, my HIV, my fill in the blank. And I thought to myself, as someone that came from old school media, I'm, I'm going to go there. They know what they're doing. They want you to own the illness and therefore the illness perhaps takes on a consciousness of its own, thus becoming even more potent in order for it to be needing a medication. It just came to mind. Mine. Because this comes down to it, doesn't it, that we, in terms of the placebo and the nocebo effect as well, you know, that clearly the human brain, because this is, this, is, this is related in many ways to what we were discussing before. You know, the idea is that we somehow, there seems to be a feedback loop between us creating these entities from our subconscious, but the, the entities, the egregores also being external to us. It's as if there's a feedback loop going on. Mm -hmm. So therefore, to say it's an hallucination, which was the point I was making about the labeling theory is, if we call it hallucination, we haven't explained what hallucinations are. Nobody knows what hallucinations are. Right. The only definition of hallucination is it's something that I see that nobody else sees. But that doesn't mean they're not real. Because, of course, the question we then have to ask is, what do we define when we say something is real Absolutely. or something is truthful? You know, the, the, these are very precise definitions, which in my work, I, I really work at, you know, the idea of what do we really mean? Let's dig behind these things. So these entities seem to be related to us. They seem to come up deeply from our subconscious. They seem to be Jungian archetypes, but they're more than that. They seem to instruct us. And it is as if we bring them into existence. Now, I call them egregores because the term is quite precise. The term egregore is Greek for watcher. Okay. And it is again a term that was first used in the Bible and particularly used in um, the Book of Enoch, which was one of the books of the Old Testament that didn't end up in the Christian Bible. Mm -hmm. But it did end up in one Christian Bible. And it was written in a language called Ge'esh. And Ge'esh is one of the written languages in Ethiopia. And if you look into Ethiopian, the Ethiopian Coptic Church, you will find that the Book of Enoch is part of the canon. And the original version was written in Ge'esh, one of the oldest languages. And in this, it tells of the egregores. And these were beings. They were the beings that came down onto Mount Hermon. In, in northern, I think it was northern Syria, I may, it might be Lebanon, 
stand corrected on that but these these beings seem to come down and seem to to to, to mix with human women and mm-hmm. created the old biblical idea of giant there were giants in these days right but to me there is more than this so i've taken this term egregorial because what then happened was magicians and a co- people of the occult following in um the 13th 14th and 15th centuries and into the 16th and 17th started to develop something called Enochian magic. And Enochian magic was using the Book of Enoch to create and bring into this existence thought beings, things that are called servitors, beings that you can manipulate and you can use as your servants. Topa. Now, again, John Dee, who was a very famous English magician, was heavily involved in this. And in my book, I have a whole section on John Dee and Edward Kelly. Mm-hmm. The two of them created these egregores from the Book of Enoch, which then carried through to uh, Alistair Crowley and the work that Alistair Crowley did in terms of his book, the book the, and his Thelema ideas. And of course, we know that he, he claimed he created entities um, uh, and drew pictures of these beings. Now, I think that we need to look into these in a far greater detail. And one of the things I'm working with, there's a couple of associates I'm working with at the moment, where we're looking into doing experiments to see if we can bring, we can, we can evaluate whether a group of people can work together to create a thought form. Mm-hmm. And whether that thought form can then be picked up by a group of mediums elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm particularly we're particularly using something that happened in 1972, which was something called the Toronto Experiment, where a group of individuals in Toronto created out of their own minds to test themselves a ghost, a young man called Philip, Philip. A. a- I'm very familiar with Conjuring Philip, it's called. I'm very familiar with that, that study. Yes. And they created this entity and it started to manifest itself. Now, to me, this seems evidential that we can in some way bring these beings forth. But if you look into the magical traditions, this is nothing new. This is what magical traditions have been using for years. But what we're trying to do is to put it onto a scientific basis. And I'm working with uh, people who work in the occult. I'm working with organizations that have been doing this for years. So we're doing some some very exciting things here. But I think, you know, that whatever these entities are, they are independent of us. They're not just part of our subconscious, but they Mm -hmm. are and they're not. And that's because external reality and internal reality are just manifestations of the same things. And I believe that what we do is we pull these creatures in from the egregorial realm. Ah. It's something in Gnostic terms that's known as the pleroma, the fullness that exists outside of our perceptions. This is called the kenoma. The Gnostics call this the kenoma. This is the, the illusion of reality that we exist within. It is it's like a simulation. I hate using the term simulation because a simulation suggests that it's based upon something else. But there's something far more complex about reality than, than, than we know it to be. And this is why people, when they have extraordinary experiences, attune into this otherness, mm-hmm. um, the unheimlich, the, the uncanny that we do. And this is what my work, where my work is taking me at the moment. So a very long synopsis 
of a very short from a very short question. Yet another area that my God, I'm taking copious notes in my mind. We've got to talk about that. Got to go further into this. What I started to blurt out, and I think I got it out, is Tulpa, and the work of um, names Alexander Neal, Alexander da- Alexander David Neal. I think it is. It's a female, but yeah. Since I learned about that from the ancient Tibetan culture, I have been fascinated. We're going to have to maybe take, maybe, because we still have to do our Patreon after show. I may have to keep you for a few extra minutes because we had a, the gremlins got in the way. Can can you hang out maybe a little past the the hour, just a little bit? Because we got to get this in. Hmm? That's fine. Okay, awesome. Listen, really quick, I have one more, uh, I'm going to be able to get one shout out comment from someone because they wanted so desperately to get if we can get a maybe one minute answer to this. I'm going to read this comment from our last show this, uh, this uh, lovely journeyer, her name is Leslie Joanne Elliot Holt, long name who says, Alexis, the, the last interview with Anthony was spectacular. When he comes back, can you please, please, please ask him to explain the cheating the ferryman more? I'm not quite understanding the repeating or reliving aspect. Can you give us a little, just a little teaser taste as to what that is? And thank you for your comment and question, Leslie. Yeah, thank you very much, Leslie. That's a great question. Cheating the Ferryman um, was my original concept. Um, The only academic, peer-reviewed academic paper I've written was actually called Cheating the Ferryman, uh, which was published in the Journal of the International Association of Near-Death Studies way back in 2004. But in, in simple terms, as anything can be simple, Cheating the Ferryman is my particular take on human immortality. The idea that we can be all immortal. And it is all to do with time, And it is all to do with clues that we get from something called the moody traits, which are the Grayson traits, which are Mm -hmm. the the things that people report when they have near-death experiences. And I argue, without going into detail, we can do it at greater length at some time in the future. But I suggest that at the point of death, something very peculiar happens to the human mind. And what it does is it's flooded by particular neurotransmitters, particularly, I think, either glutamate, and my latest research is suggesting probably endogenous dimethyltryptamine. And what this does, it brings about a slowing down of time. You start to slow down, your your perception of time starts to slow down, whereas relative to somebody else, you die. But relative to yourself, you exist in smaller and smaller bits of time. Now, many of you will have had the experience when you've been involved in a car crash or an accident or you've fallen or whatever, where time seems to just dilate. Now, that's the glutamate, glutamate clicking into your brain. Now, the one thing I wrote a whole book on time perception called The Labyrinth of Time. And in that I argue, I try to get across the idea that time is subjective. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. imagine a scenario whereby in the last second of your life, you fall out of time. So relative to your position, the last seconds of your life can last 70 years. So in the last second, last 70 years, and in the last second of that second life is another 70 years and another 70 years, as long as you want it to go on for. So what do you fill that time with? Well, in near-death experiences, one of the moody traits is something that people turn around and say, my life flashed before my eyes. People say this a lot, you know, I saw my whole life like a video film. I take this and I argue in a real death experience, that you experience a past life review, hmm. but literally in a minute by minute 
recreation of your past life, which effectively means that at the end of your life, you'll live your life again and again and again. This explains deja vu. This explains precognition. This explains so many experiences we have. But the difference is that I suggest that when you live your life again, it's not like a movie. It's drawn up from the Akashic field, from the Akashic record. In fact, every every alternate, every outcome of every decision you make is already encoded within the zero point field. Mm -hmm. And again, I do the quantum physics if anybody's interested. So in which case, it means that every decision you make is like what Borges called the garden of the forking paths. You go on a different path and a different path and you follow a different route as you do in a computer game. When you join a computer game, third person computer graphics. Now, the difference is that when you live your second life, at the end of the first life, human consciousness splits into two sides, what I call the Edelon and the Daemon. The Edelon is the person that lives life as we do. In, in We're unaware of the fact we lived our lives before. We're unaware of the fact we will live our lives again. The daemon is the immortal you. It's your spirit guide. It is your ascended master. It is whatever people want to call it. And all traditions have this concept of the higher self. This is your part of the pleroma that's inside you. That is your spirit guide. And it's your spirit guide that moves you through each life as your game player to make sure that you don't make the mistakes you made last time. Or more importantly, do make mistakes in order for the game player to Mm. actually explore what happened had you married Joe or Fred Mm. or you'd not, you decided to emigrate to Australia or you decided to go to university or go to a different university. All these are already encoded within the zero point field, within the information field, the data field. Now, so, so you live your life many, many times in order, as in the Groundhog Day scenario in the movie, you can live the perfect life. Uh-huh. So over many iterations, perfect life, and then you move on. But remember, this all happens in a split second before you die. Right. Okay? Okay. Now, again, this is backed up by quantum physics. There's something called the quantum suicide experiment, which backs it up. It's to do with both the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics, the top-down hypothesis of um, Stephen Hawking and, and Frank Hartle. It is also to do with something called the transactional analysis of quantum physics of John Kramer. Uh, I also work on the work of Dave Professor David Bohm and the work of David Bohm, the implicate and explicate orders. So these are extraordinary claims I'm making, but I back them up with hard science. This is the fact that my, what I do, I back these up. I don't just throw these things out. Finally, why do I call it cheating the ferryman? In ancient Greek myths, when somebody died in ancient Greece, they would place a tiny coin called an obelai underneath the tongue of the corpse. The reason they would do that is the corpse, when the corpse became consciously aware again of what it was, it would find itself in this place as a shade, this magical place. And there would be a river and there would be mist. And through the river would come Caron the boatman. And he would be there to take you over from this world to the world of the dead. And you would have to pay Caron the obolus, the obeli, the coin. And he would then take you over to the land of the dead. I argue you never do that. You cheat the ferryman out of giving him his payment to take you over. Because in ancient Greek myth, and this is quite fascinating, is that they believed 
that if you drank something of the waters of the Lethe, the, li the river of forgetting, all your past life memories would be wiped clean and you would be allowed to go back and live your life again. This is something that was believed by the Stoics, the pre-Socratics and various other groups within ancient Greek philosophy. So the idea is you then go back and you live your life again by drinking the waters of the leaf. And in doing so, you cheat the ferryman. So that is basically what is a 380 page book. But I tried to make it as succinct as I possibly you can. You sure did. I hope that helped, Leslie. It did me. Thank you, Anthony. We're out of time for this portion, but you know, we're going to we're going to have a cliffhanger. <laughs> and that cliffhanger is going to continue for a few more minutes, maybe a little longer. I'm going to get Anthony to stick around with me a little longer for our closed door private journey on Patreon. I want to pose a question that maybe you can answer when we get off. We're going to go run on over to, to Patreon and talk. Can the daemon die? Don't answer that now. Can the daemon die? And if so, what then? So I'm going to leave it there. Before I do, I'm going to give some shout outs, speaking of Patreon, because that's where we're going to be. I want to thank everyone. But every show that I do for the foreseeable future, I want to send special shouts out, shout, shout outs. So I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to name names, just first names. I want to thank Alex, my namesake, Amanda, Ange or Ang, I think it's probably Ange, Ariana, Arca, Candace, Carmelo, Charles, I am going in alphabetical order, Christine, Cindy E, Cindy H, and Sydney. Thank you so much for being a part of the Higher Journeys Patreon. We hope to have more of you. I know you're going to want to listen to this conversation that we're going to continue for a few more minutes over on the Patreon channel. Go to higher, I always do this wrong, patreon.com forward slash higher journeys, patreon.com forward slash higher journeys. Get in on the after journey and the private journey with us. So again, Anthony, I'm going to uh, continue with you. I'm going to sign off with the journeyers for now, but thank you as always for more than succinct, erudite, com complex, and yet easily digestible. Thank you for all of those gifts that you bring to us. We so appreciate you. You're the best. All right. We'll see you soon. And uh, we'll see you hopefully on Patreon. If not, we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. I love you. Bye now. <laughs>